Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Hello friends and welcome to another action-packed podcast The Heretic Happy Hour uh, Oh my goodness, so many good things packed into this episode We cannot wait to dump it all over you. Yeah. Uh, but my name is Keith, and uh, Keith Giles, I am the author of Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb, and a couple other books. And uh, I am not alone. I am joined by two amazing authors, thinkers, writers, uh, people, and uh, they're my friends Jamal and Matt. Hey, guys. Say hi. Hi, guys. This is Jamal Javanji, and I am author of Free to Love. It's uh, great to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour with you all. And I'm Matthew DiStefano. Uh, so happy to be here. I'm the author of three books with another one on the way called Heretic, going to be out on Choir Publishing. And I also write for Pathios. So if you want to subscribe to my blog, I'm going to give a little plug here, guys. Hey, I, I write um, for Pathios too, man. Come yes, on. yes, you do. I, hey, yeah, go. I guess I missed my chance. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You, go ahead. You, had, you had your chance, man. Right. Your, your time has come and gone. Sorry. Uh, go, go to Pathios.com. <laughs> Slash blog slash all set free. Isn't Pathios like that Pathios. site that has like ads and stuff and then sometimes they have articles? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. Something like that. Hey, 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 I know it's kind of annoying, but uh, I, it is what it is. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, Mark Driscoll's website, isn't it? Mark Driscoll runs that. <laughs> he he yeah, runs that, blog. yeah. I, we just I, see of, him, I see him on the front page quite often. So yeah, he must, yeah. He must have some influence, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into the show. But before we do, we got to have a word from our sponsor, which is the Unfundamentalist blog, a group de- uh, focused on following Jesus' commandments to love God and neighbor and is dedicated to the opposing the toxic, power-mongering, fear-inflaming nonsense that is inherent in economic, political, societal, and religious fundamentalism. You can find them online at facebook.com backslash unfundamentalist or read their blog at unfundamentalists.com. Yeah. And yeah, get them. Uh, Jamal, why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell the lovely uh, lovely listeners about this hotline we might have? Guys, we have a hotline. <laughs> right. we, actually, we actually do have a hotline. It's a rumor that's been out there, but it's true. I'm here to confirm. It's true. Confirm it that rumor. True. It's not a rumor. It's actually truth. But um, here's the number in case you guys don't have it. Uh, so make sure you have your, you know, your uh, recording utensils out. And here's here's the number. <laughs> it's two four zero three heresy, or for people with non rotary phones, two four zero three four three seven three seven nine two four zero three four three seven three seven nine. And actually, as a matter of fact, somebody stumbled on this line, and we have uh, I think we have, we have a call from. From Dan, actually. Dan the man. Incredible. Hi, guys. This is Dan Wilkinson, the editor of the Unfundamentalist blog, who proudly sponsors your show. And I'd just like to make a little correction to what you've been saying. Uh, you apparently don't know the difference between a forward slash and a backslash. Uh, our address on Facebook is facebook.com forward slash unfundamentalist. Don't! Uh, I don't know if you thought you were being uh, heretical with uh, by saying backslash, but I wanted to set the record straight once and for all. So you can find uh, Unfundamentalist on Facebook.com forward slash Unfundamentalist or on our blog, 
our own website, which is unfundamentalists.com. Uh, keep up the great work, guys. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Oh, you know what? I, I noticed it. Every time you were doing it, I was thinking to myself, I think that's a forward slash, dude. You uh, did. But I didn't and want to interrupt you. You didn't say shit for all these episodes. Well, I didn't. I mean, I thought I'll tell you later. But then I always forgot about it because we got into the topic and we talked goodbye at the end and I always cool. forgot about it. Hey, I, I apologize. It, if you want to go to their <laughs> Facebook page, go to facebook.com forward slash unfundamentalist or read the blog at unfundamentalist.com. Oh. I wonder why they're not getting any, why are they not getting any, you know, no traffic, so, no traffic. Yeah. And, and also guys, um, you know, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, but, uh, it's possible to text the, the hotline as well. Mm-hmm. And we do have a text that we can queue up. So can we get our engineer to queue up this text? Okay. Okay, here it is. It's queued up. All right, here's this text came into the Heretic uh, Happy Hour Hotline, and here it is. It's, quote, thank you so much for your podcast. I have been fed up with the Christian, quote unquote, religion for a long time. Thank you for helping me fall back in love with Jesus without religion. Mm. I am in a completely deconstructed state, and I am so ha- and so happy I am. Uh, and I'm so happy I am, sorry, unquote. <clears throat> and, you know, what I have found, yeah. and that's a great, that's a great, uh, text from uh the the, from the listener so i appreciate that thank you guys for or thank you for for sending that in it's really awesome and i have i can completely understand with you feeling like that you're in a completely destructed state deconstructed state because i have felt that way before and every time i have felt that way i realize that i'm just starting the process Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Right. so get ready for more. Yeah, exactly. And I and I love those quotes like that. Please, everybody, please, you know, we need to hear that. It means so much to us to get feedback from you guys, whether it's a voicemail or a text, that um, that the podcast is having an impact. And by the way, we are getting it. I get I get messages on Facebook and, and personal messages all the time from people, you know, just letting us know. But gosh, it, it means a lot. It really does. So if you're being blessed by it, if it is helping you, uh, understand some things and we, if you know, just let us know because it, it, it helps us know that uh, we're on the right track. Yeah, let's. Um, so thank you for that. Let's uh, get into our next segment, which is, as always, the Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hey, my name is Mark Harris and I am a heretic. Hi, Hi Mark. Mark. Hello. Yes, Mark. Mark Harris. Uh, <laughs> we are super excited to have you uh, join yeah. us on the Heretic Happy Hour. Um, so, welcome, welcome. Awesome. Uh, why don't you Why don't you start out by telling our lovely listeners who you are, a little about a little bit about yourself, and and perhaps why folks may think that you are a heretic. Well, uh, who I am? God, what a loaded question! Who the hell knows? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> some some people some people tell me I'm a licensed therapist, ordained pastor, adjunct uh, professor at the Lyon International University, husband, father, author, blah blah blah. But why do people consider me a heretic? Well, I, you probably shared on the past podcast that heretic just means holding opinions and thoughts which are contrary to what is generally accepted as truth. Mm-hmm. And that's why the early Christians were considered heretics by leaders in power in their day. Yeah. So I, I certainly have been called a heretic, but that's just because uh, I refuse to be theologically domesticated 
I refuse to be like a wild horse forced to be saddled and required to stay in a small, homogenous theological box like stable. Amen. I refuse to stop asking questions. I refuse to stop being curious. And that has made some folks who know me feel a little uncomfortable, uncomfortable to the point of calling me a heretic and some damning me to hell. Mm-hmm. Though I, I think in this day and age, I think that's the real sign that you're a heretic if you get a lot of people who tell you you're damned to hell. Yeah. Um, so, so my questioning of the nuances of the Trinity, my questioning of original guilt or questioning of the literalness of the Bible, my questioning of a violent uh, vampire-esque God needing blood to satiate his thirst so he's no longer angry at humanity uh, and other types of provocative questions make people slightly uneasy. But there's one thing I I need to share too. I don't take pride in being called a heretic. I don't consider it a badge of honor. And then if I could be, it's uh, it's a little isolating and I oftentimes feel sad um, that some in the Christian community are so stuck and steeped in religion and it's byproducts of uh, shame, guilt, judgment, criticism, and fear, which causes them to react negatively anytime someone puts a wrench in their tidy theological frameworks. But I was there, so I can only have compassion and empathy and understanding. It's just not where I am anymore. So Right, that's, yeah, man. Uh, and that's a, that's a key point, is that remembering that a lot of us, we did... We did come from this sort of <laughs> theological, the same or similar theological box, right? And so we mm. do have to look back and say, okay, those, those people might be where I was 20 years ago. So I do understand where um, they're, why they're being driven to say such things. Because at the end of the day, when you have a fear-based theology, it, it mm. makes you do some pretty what we would consider not so good things any longer, right? Yeah. I mean, at the base of it, you know, we could, I could talk all day about this, but I mean, you, you talk, I'm a therapist, so I, I think a little deeply about the, the psyche and why we do the things we do. But from an evolutionary standpoint, I mean, you know, being a part of a tribe and belonging and right. fitting in and, you know, it kept us safe, it kept us alive and at, at the base of it is people who just want to be loved, I guess, and and we uh, need to feel safe and secure, and that's I, I get it. Right. I want to feel that too, although I I don't feel that all the time. So right, yeah. right. Well, I tell you what, Mark, this is Keith. You fit right in with us. Everything you just said, um, I think uh, Matt and I and Jamal and a lot of us in the Heretic Happy Hour, our listeners and, and in the Facebook group, I think uh, would would say amen to a lot of the things you just said uh, mm. and, and have kind of had a similar journey that you've had. But, you know, and at the same time, questioning those things, not being content to sort of just maintain the status quo. Uh, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like uh, everybody just wants you to, you know, don't make waves. Uh, let's maintain what what they call quote unquote orthodoxy, uh, which is really just the status quo. Don't ask questions. Don't uh, don't start, don't try to poke holes in our theology or look at places where it doesn't mm-hmm. quite line up with the character of God or with, with who Jesus was or that kind of a thing. Um, so what? Um, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm assuming you haven't always felt this way or thought this way, right? I mean, if you're mm if you've arrived at some of these 
places, were, were there things that helped push you in that direction? Was there like one particular thing that kind of set the ball in, in motion for you and then other things came after it? Yeah. Uh, what, what did that look like? Well, I think my deconstruction process was like, walking in a murky pond with strange and scary fish swimming it around and with jagged nails on the bottom of the water floor. Oh, wow. It certainly, it certainly was not easy, but, you know, I have a rich stories and upon stories. But, you know, I got saved when I was 21. And it's kind of interesting because before that was completely chaotic. I mean, environment with drugs and violence and, uh, you know, of course, throw some abuse on top of that. Mm. Uh, mom passed away from a drug overdose. I mean, just not the best environment. But I got saved at the age of 21. And I had an authentic and transformational experience with God. And to this day, I cannot forget uh, that moment uh, that not everyone has a moment. I had a moment. Mm. Um, so, but I got saved in a cult or some like to call them the Jesus-only folk, uh, or some call them oneness Pentecostals. But I could only oh, yeah. fellowship with people who believe in the Trinity or who don't believe in the Trinity. It was a sin for women to even cut her hair. Uh, I had a minister tell me I was in danger of hellfire. True story, because I told him I drank wine at a wedding. Whoa! But yeah. but I was in the real faith, the one true faith, the only true Christianity that was once delivered unto the saints. Mm. So that was kind of what I got saved into. But one thing that I had going for me was an inquisitive mind. And then slowly but surely, I began to question my, quote, one true religion. And I remember one conference in particular. And I, I'll never forget it. There were hundreds of people. And the focus, of course, was on holiness in Acts 2.38. And I'll never forget the, what the minister said. He was talking about Christians who chose to smoke cigarettes. And he said with a loud a preacher voice at the top of his lungs, if they're smoking now, they'll be smoking later. <laughs> and of course, of course, he was referring to hell. Yes. And the whole crowd erupted with cheers and praise. And I remember I was in the middle of it all. Wow. And all I could do was weep with tears down my wow. eyes. And I thought to myself, how could anyone get excited and jump up and down because others were going to hell for eternity? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, it wasn't too long. After That's pretty fucked up. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> and so it wasn't too long after that that I left that sect of Christianity and I've been questioning everything ever since. Uh, sure, I had a few panic attacks after that. Who was saved? Who wasn't? Who was a Christian? Who am I a Christian? Am I saved? I mean, I was so stuck in religion, and this is true, that I couldn't drink soda because I thought if I did, I would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow. That's how, man, I, w I drank the juice and, and a whole bunch of other things. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how fear-based religion can can um can control you in such sort of weird ways. Yeah, yeah. And and truth be told, you know, we, we can blame a lot of things on religion, and I think there's truth to that. But anytime someone hates the church or religion screwed me up, you know, not too far away from that is some mommy and daddy issues too. Yeah. So while, while I can certainly blame the church, 
I think some of my old trauma certainly had um, something to do with that sort of sh- shame infestation, fear. Of course, I feared my, my dad wouldn't love me and I had to prove my love constantly. And it sort of, uh, you know, projected on God too. So it's interesting how they're related. Well, yeah, that's just it right there. I mean, it's like we get this, the New Testament analogy that, that you know, God is father um, or at least if you're Trinitarian, that part of God is Father. And then it's like, with those of us who had dads like like I did, or, or Mark, like you did, you're like, wow, it's it seems pretty easy not... I mean, it seems pretty easy to project what our image of Father is onto God, so then we can then make these theological claims that might make sense to us. But it's not because it's truth, but it's because... Maybe our dads were shitheads and maybe their dads, maybe their dads before them were shitheads and we just passed this on sort of intergenerationally. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's so easy just to project that onto the divine based on what our idea of father might be. Oh yeah. And uh, Paul Vitz wrote a book, I believe it's called the faith of the fatherless. And I don't know how, you know, if it's all true or not, but he, his thesis was, um, you know, he looked at Freud and Voltaire and some of the harsh critics of religion. He looked at their relationships with their dad. And what do you know? You know, the, uh, there's some correlation. But come on, we can't say that with every person who has issues with God. But we can't dismiss it as one possible option either. Right. Yeah. So, um, Mark, we're about uh, about halfway into our interview. I I I got I want you to tell us and the listeners what you've got going on now that you're excited about because honestly like what you've shared with me offline and 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 what we uh what we were able to share on my blog recently was just like out of this park man so I want I want you to take at least a few minutes here and tell folks what you've got um out now recently huh yeah, yeah, very excited. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, it's going to shake people up, and it's called Divine Echoes: Reconciling Prayer uh, with an Uncontrolling God. And there's so much to talk about. We I know we don't have a huge amount of time, but some of it stemmed from I talked about my mom uh, dying from a drug overdose. Um, then my, I have my brother. You know, both my brother was um, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So here I am as a Christian praying fervently and fasting and the church is praying and deliverance services. And, and you know, my mom died of a drug overdose. My brother, he didn't get well. Uh, he wasn't, quote, delivered from demons. Uh, he's sitting in, in prison as we speak. Uh, and then he was off his meds and he murdered someone in prison. Wow. And so my prayers didn't do much. And that that caused uh, some questions for me. And it reminds me of a quote by Dallas Willard, uh, the late Dallas Willard, the idea that everything in our lives would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether or not we pray, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who profess sincere belief in Christ. And the failure of prayer haunted me. Right. And then so I began to look at my prayers and the church's prayers and God, heal this person of, of this sickness. God, root out the violence in this nation. God, root out poverty. And bo- Then I said, is this doing anything? Does, yeah. does the traditional notion of petitionary prayer, my Aunt Mary is sick. I sit in my room, God, 
Please heal Aunt Mary. You're the one with all the power. You could snap your fingers. Does that do anything to God? Now, of course, I was told that it does, that we can, quote, storm the gates of heaven, that it's uh, spiritual warfare in the heavenly realms when we engage God in, in petitionary prayer of, like this. But I began to question and question and question. And then I said, you know what? Something's amiss here. Something's wrong. This feels very much like religion, superstition. Uh, and then it began my journey of investigation, deconstruction, and reconstruction of petitionary prayer. Mm. Yeah. And I, I could go on and on. I don't know where you want me to go with this book, but. Yeah. Well, and I, uh, that sounds awesome. I, I, can I ask a question? Um, and yeah. I think maybe our listeners would want to know. So, and I agree with you. I, I, I totally agree with you in that whole thing of, okay, sometimes I pray and something happens. Sometimes I pray and nothing happens. Uh, why is that? I mean, so, mm. so I guess I want to ask you, do you. Do you believe that sometimes God does miraculously move and heal and do something like totally crazy? Or uh, are you just saying that whether or not how, in other words, like if we don't say the magic words, God will or won't do it, Mm -hmm. um, but maybe he will, maybe he won't. Yeah. Uh, First, I would say God's always doing something crazy. And that's the... You know, and I would consider it miraculous. I mean, that's the difference. I, I do talk about... The reconstruction, which is my understanding of what I call conspiring prayer. Now, I could say this is conspiring prayer in traditional petitionary prayer. In traditional petitionary prayer, God can intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. God could do whatever God wants, whenever God wants to do it, because God is an autocrat. God has all the power and could do what God wants. And God does. God can heal this person, save this person, stop this person from being raped, but maybe not this person. And that kind of gets really iffy for me. In conspiring prayer, I would say God can't intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. Because, and this gets into theodicy, why a good and all-powerful loving God, how that God exists in a world where there's uh, a lot of evil and suffering and this gets into Thomas Ord's work. He's um, a theologian in his, his book, The Uncontrolling Love of God. But God can't stop evil from occurring. G- because of God's nature is love, God doesn't force God's way into people's lives. God doesn't forcefully and single-handedly change events. Now, you asked if God can do crazy miracles and stuff. I say yes, but first of all, God's doing that all the time. The very fact that we're breathing right now, right. God's doing that. But let's say the weird and wacky miraculous stuff, I would say yes, if it's in cooperation with other agents and law-like regularities and even taking into consideration randomness. So yes, wild, crazy, and wacky things do happen, but I would suggest it's in cooperation with all of those agencies and elements as opposed to God just single-handedly regardless of those agencies and elements doing whatever God wants. And the, yeah, yeah, because yeah. if it's, if it's, if it's that case, then God is kind of, he's, he's capricious at best and he's malevolent at worst because it's like, there is so much suffering and evil in the world. If our prayers are really like, he's just sitting around waiting for us to pray or he's doing things kind mm-hmm. of just capriciously because that's how it seems to be. Some kids die, some don't, some get cancer. So, I mean, mm-hmm. regard, irregardless of what, 
prayers are being offered up. Then, like you said in the article, um, it's like, that, what does that make God out to be? Oh my goodness. Like, it's just assuming he's not doing what he's already doing. And the, the example you give is, is wonderful. Like the, the, the surgeon who's doing surgery with care and compassion and, and, and with all of her knowledge and then asking her, will you please try to do it with care and compassion? Today? And it's like, <laughs> that's, yeah, yes, that's what she that's does. Absurd. That, I mean, that's totally yeah. disrespectful. It's not, it's uh-huh. totally doubting the, the integrity and the skill and professional and wisdom of the surgeon. Right. And so likewise, I think we can do that with some traditional notions of petitionary prayer. Oh, oh for yeah. sure. For sure. I think there was this example in that there was this NFL player who like blamed God that he dropped the ball. It's like, because he must've prayed the prayer that he's going to catch the winning touchdown. And when he didn't, it must've been God's fault. And it's like, damn, really? That's, that's how we view prayer whole. And it is, that's, that seems to be the way Yeah, that seems to be that the way I was yeah. raised. You know? Can I, can I also share one of the real um, issues for me is issues of justice. It's one of the saddest things to think that petitionary prayer, at least a traditional notion of petitionary prayer, can paradoxically become an obstacle to the very thing we're hoping for. Like in petitionary prayer, where the whole notion of petitionary prayer is that we're requesting God to increase God's love in the world in very practical and real ways. But it's paradoxical because we're thinking that God is going to be the sole person to do it, therefore, or thereby absolving us from the responsibility to be God's hands and feet in the world to enact justice with God. Hmm. That's, for me, hmm. the scariest thing. Yeah. Um, so how many people have suffered? How many people have died because we have prayed, God, you do this, Instead of God, how can we creatively do this? Yeah. So in other words, yeah, it's like it's like you're in your car and you're driving down the street and you see some person, maybe a homeless person, and they they trip and they fall and they can't get up and they're in a lot of pain. And you just drive by and you say, oh, Jesus, please, please help that person. And you keep going <laughs> like, well, hey, you could have pulled over and you could help that person. Right. Like we could be the answer to our own prayer many times. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if I have, uh, you know, uh, time for one more story. I know you guys are, what do we have, a couple of minutes? Uh, go, yeah, for go, ahead. go for it. But, but you said it perfectly, and you mentioned the homeless, right? So uh, imagine this. Yeah. New York City, a congregation gathered for a prayer meeting. A winter storm was expected the following day, so they took time to pray for a group of homeless people who frequented an area not too far from the church. And so they prayed, God, pour out your love on the homeless people downtown. Help them find shelter, protect them from the cold and from illness, show them the salvation of your dear son, Jesus. Now, you know, if we don't think about it, wow, what a sincere, loving community taking some time to pray for the homeless downtown. But perhaps they were the ones who needed to be saved from the pitfalls of petitionary prayer, at least a traditional notion. They may have meant well. But their prayers indicated a belief that talking to God would absolve them of any responsibility to do something about the problem by placing all responsibility for resolving it upon God. So ironically, instead of being beneficial, their prayers became an obstacle to God being able to use that congregation as a spirit-led and empowered people to love, help, and save those homeless people. 
listen, God does not, he's not the one who needs to be coaxed, persuaded, or reminded in any way to love the homeless. God longs for them to be holistically saved. God grieves that some will suffer in their freezing cold. So if prayer is in its simplest form an act of talking, then perhaps God whispered to that congregation, church, pour out your love on the homeless people downtown. Help them find shelter. Protect them from the cold and from illness. Show them the salvation of my dear son, Jesus. Yeah, Yeah. amen. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's like, uh, you know, when I hear people make comments all the time and they something, a tragedy happens, something horrible happens. And they'll say, how could God allow that to happen? And I think, you know what? Let's make a list of all the things in the world that God allows. And I think what you realize is, is everything. Ooh. It's rape, it's murder, it's torture, it's war, it's genocide, it's everything. You know, um, yes, God allows everything that's happening currently to continue to happen. The real question, I think, is why do we allow these things to happen? Yeah, We see them happening and we we have agency that we could do something about it. That's the real question. We keep blaming things on God, but we're not really taking responsibility ourselves. The fact that we are supposed to be his hands and his feet, you know, we're mm. supposed to be the incarnation of Christ now in the world. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and, and if I may, sh- yeah, I mean, you're right on there. If I could just push back on, I have this issue with the phrase God allows, mm-hmm. and I, I think we should uh, erase it from our theological vernacular um, because that suggests that God could disallow. Mm-hmm. That suggests that, so God can't disallow because God's love is uncontrolling. So because God's love is uncontrolling, God can't control or force or disallow something from hap- to, from happening. Just a little kind of tweak on that phrase, you know, God allowing some, God allowed her to get into right. an accident so her life would change and she would come to know him. God had no control it's not like God could disallow it by by single-handedly stopping the one vehicle from hitting her. Uh, so that, that notion, that language and piecing out that language matters in our view and how we talk about yeah. God. Well, I, t- I, t- I tell you what, Mark, I think that's a perfect spot to wrap this up. And if if if, if the book cool. is as good as um, what you're saying here, I, I really um, – my wife and I are actually going to start reading it together Um uh, well, by the time this comes out, we may already be start to read it because I'm that excited about it. And awesome. and the article you wrote is is beautiful, and I can't wait to dig into the um, more of the meat of of what you've got going here. And uh, it's it's called Divine Echoes. You're gonna be able to get it anywhere, right? Amazon, Choir, um, Barnes. I mean, you can get it anywhere online, right? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank, thanks, man. We love we awesome. loved having you on cool. here. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Wow, that was amazing. That was amazing, Mark. Uh, I cannot wait to read this book. It's. Uh, I tell you what, man, I, I love that <clears throat> just the questions he's asking and the, the things I think people have thought about prayer a long time, but just didn't really know how to express it. Like what's going on here with prayer. And uh, that was, that was awesome. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be interested to dig in more on the book. Cause I think like we mentioned, you know, his article came out and, and it's kind of just this, the article that he wrote for my blog was like this deconstruction portion of it. And so it's like, mm-hmm. And I know why he did. He wants to get people to read the book, but now I'm chomping at the bit to get it. And my wife, you know, is excited to read it with me. So it is, it is a conversation starter. And I think it is something that I've struggled with, you know, what, what, what is prayer all about? So I'm, I am looking forward to reading this book and uh, hopefully I'll write a review too. Cause that'd be fun. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. That's cool. and, 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 you know, I was trying to ask him questions, but you guys kept <laughs> muting me. So I don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we got to we got to put you, we got to shut you down a little bit sometimes, Jamal. You get a little out of hand. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, so should we jump on into our topic here? Yeah, let's get it. Let's get it. All right. So um, you probably know this already if you're listening to this podcast. You clicked on the link and you know what our topic is, but um, we do have to say it out loud. the The topic is: Does God have a penis? <laughs> and it's funny because I was driving in the car last night with my with my wife and my two sons, and they're both um, in college. You know, they're college age. And I, I was just mentioning that, oh yeah, I got to record this podcast tomorrow about does God have a penis or a vagina? And and uh, my sons were like, why do you even have to talk about this? Like, why is this even an issue? It it is kind of silly. It is kind of stupid that we would even have to have an entire podcast to instruct people on the fact that God is not male or female. God does not have a penis. God doesn't have a vagina. Um, but yet for some people, for some Christians, it seems that this is something we have to talk about. They don't get it. Right. And, 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 and to be fair, most Christians would say, hey, God literally doesn't have a penis, right? I mean, they would. Right. But at, but at the same time, I guess the truth behind the question is, yeah, we're not asking really, does, does God literally have a penis? But we are asking, and and it's a fair question because of how patriarchal uh, Christianity and and so many other religions and and non religions, mm-hmm. just a patriarchal in general, um, that we do project this male quality onto God. Not necessarily saying he has a penis, but for all intents and purposes, that God does, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and it is something where <clears throat> I think I wrote a blog, blog about this a while back, and it's um, w- with the same title: Does God have a penis? And um, because what reminded me, uh, years ago, I interviewed this guy, Spencer Burke, which most people don't know who this guy is anymore, but back in the 90s, I guess, or early 2000s, uh, Spencer Burke was a leading emerging church guy. He had a blog called The Ooze, or a website called The Ooze, and I wrote articles for The Ooze. It was the pathos of the day, mm-hmm. and uh, if you want to put it that way. And uh, anyway, I interviewed him for Relevant Magazine, and... Um, we were having having lunch together, and he. I'm recording. I have a tape recorder. I'm recording. This is how old it was. I had a tape recorder. I'm recording <laughs> him talking, and he made a statement <clears throat> that was so scandalous to me at the time. I didn't publish the interview because I didn't know what to do about the quote, and I didn't want to remove the quote because I knew he would say, "Hey, why didn't you put that in there?" And I didn't want to leave it in because I frankly thought it would bury him, and he would get so much negative uh, backlash from it. I didn't want to hurt him. So I just didn't publish the interview at all. But the statement he made was this. He said, um, he said, you know, God uh, in the Old Testament is male because the Jewish people, uh, Israel, was a patriarchal society. And if they had been a matriarchal society, God would have been she and Jesus could have come as a woman. And, yeah. Well, at the time I thought, oh, crap, I can't print that. That's insane. <laughs> But so funny, talking about this deconstruction process, now I read that and I listen to that quote and I say, I think he's exactly right. That, you know, there's a quote by Voltaire that says, God made man in his image and man returned the favor. Like, that's what we do. That's what Israel was doing, right? So because the guys who wrote the Bible were guys, uh, God was a guy. Because these guys were warriors and, and, uh, you know, God was a warrior, because these guys wanted, you know, vengeance on their enemies. God wanted vengeance on their enemies. Like we, and, and nowadays, because most uh, evangelical Christians in America are conservative Republicans, God is a Republican. Right. Uh, big shock, right? So we, we, we do this where we project who we are onto who God is. And we do the same thing with this idea that God 
is male. Do you guys get this all the time? Like anytime I talk about this topic, uh, I get pushback where where people will say, typically on Facebook or on my blog, they'll they'll make comments like, yes, Keith, but you know, the Bible says God, God, God prefers to identify himself as, as a male. Right. And, and even Jesus calls God father. And, and so, so we do have to just accept that maleness is the way God has chosen to reveal himself. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think this is, this is where the Bible uh, fails us or is very limited, is not complete in the sense of like, because I think if you read the Bible, if you, if all you have, like if your only concept of God comes from the Bible, then what happens is when you read the Bible, most of the old Testament, you're automatically going to assume that God is male because that's how, obviously, like you said, Keith, um, with the, with the person you were interviewing alluded to is that, yeah, in the old Testament, most of the, um, revelations of God come through a male grid because that's their paradigm. And if, if it was a maternal society, then of course it would be f- female. So I think that's the problem is that we're looking to a text, a book, uh, writings to show us what God is like when I think that's not actually, that's not the way it was meant to be. So h- here's the thing. If you never had the Bible, let's just, you know, put the Bible to the side for a minute and let's just look at what we have. We have the universe. If you just look at the universe, if you look at the earth, you look at created, you know, you look at uh, all these different life forms, what would you conclude? And specifically humans, <clears throat> if you were to look at human beings, what would you conclude? You would conclude that that the source where all of this came from must have male and female because that's what you see. There's a this idea of polarity um, that exists in the universe. There's this polarity function. So male and female are very much a part in, in every kind of life form. They're very much a part uh, <clears throat> of, of creation. So I think if you're going to look at just look at that without the without the grid of this text or this patriarchal, you know, kind of bent that tends to come through the Bible, you would never get the idea that God is only represented through one gender. You would you would automatically look and say, oh, God is represented through through both genders. Because and I, somebody said it this way, and I, I like, you know, um, you know, the pushback against patriarchy. A lot of times, <clears throat> we're seeing God through this male lens has been just like, well, God's not a male. Um, but I would say it like this. I might say it this way, that God is not gender less, but God is gender full. So the fact that mm. male and female exist all throughout creation, this masculine feminine polarity, this energy, I would conclude that God is very much full of gender. So that it's, it's a gender fullness. Mm. That's kind of, I, I think, the way I like to look at it. Well, and and I'll take it a step further and say um, – take things out of non-binary terms and say it's not just male and female. If you just look at the cosmos, you will see, I mean, just look at humanity. I mean, we're learning now um, through, you know, sociologically, psychologically, um, physiologically, that gender is not binary. But we see this throughout the cosmos too. There are species, and I I wish I had Wikipedia pulled up in front of me, that there's, there's these creatures that could be both male and female. I think it's the puffer fish. Um, but if, if it's not that, if there's other, there's other species out there that are non-binary and, and we're learning that humans yeah, aren't too, asexual. right. Or asexual yeah. too also, but I mean, gender and sexuality right. being different, but yeah, the point being that it's not binary, but I'll also problematize something that you said, Jamal, the, the, the Jewish scriptures and, and, and the new Testament scriptures, but the, the Bible does subvert a lot of these notions of God as only male. Yes, indeed. It is patriarchal. And it is a male-driven society. But like so many other things, the Jewish scriptures 
then take us sort of away from that. You know, they take us away from the practice of sacrifice, you know, switching gears a little bit, you know, with the Abraham and Isaac story, they, they subvert the, some of the creation myths, the murder myths where um, the problem is violence, you know, instead of the problem being that we're noisy or something like that. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, like in the Babylonian uh, myth, you know, it's like, we're noisy, we annoy the gods. So we get smote. Um, But so, so, the Bible does, if we can read it in its context, with Christ as the telos, the end, the end summation of this Israel story, like he's the culmination of it, then we can see that we go from one place to another. So I don't all, yes, there's a, there is a problem with the Bible. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say there's a problem with how we interpret the Bible. Yes. I don't think there's a problem with the Bible itself because it, it's a story that includes all of the bullshit that humanity projects onto God, but it does expose the bullshit too. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think it, it does. I mean, you can see that the way, which is what I would call the way of Christ is transcendent. It does run through the Bible. And so you can see it, but it's mixed bag. It's uh, you get, you can, you can make a case for patriarchy using the Bible because patriarchy is very much there in the Bible. Um, but, but the way also transcends it and runs through it. So I, I would, you know, you kind of got to go, you got to kind of sift out the crap. I, I agree. The, like, like Gerard exactly. says, the Bible's a text in travail. It includes the voice mm-hmm. of religion. It includes the voice of vengeance. So we, so how do we, you know, how do we discern that? I mean, that's obviously probably a different topic for another day. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I just want to make sure that it's clear that there is a way to interpret the Bible that draws out like this truth that it's trying to say in spite of all the the BS, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, there was a great quote yesterday, uh, Brian Zahn made, uh, was, I think it was an article he wrote. Uh, it was so dead on. It was like, you know, if you, and I've heard him say this in other ways too, but it was, it was an article shared yesterday I saw where he said, um, you know, if you want to use the Bible to prove patriarchy, it's there. Right. If you want to use the Bible to support genocide, you can do that. It's there. Uh, in other words, you can use the Bible to to build a case for all sorts of things, and that's part of the problem. Uh, because the Bible, again, as we've said many times, is not a unified voice on you know on everything. There are different perspectives there, and and that some of those perspectives are corrected by later prophets and by later perspectives and are certainly all of them should be anyway um ultimately corrected by jesus right and that jesus is the lens through which we see uh all of those things that we should be filtering all of those things but if you don't do that if you decide you don't want to do that if you don't want to go through jesus well then you can certainly just turn to any old testament passage and you can support slavery you can support beating your wife you can support uh having multiple wives you can support all kinds of stuff right uh you, as crazy as you want to get and that's part of the problem um, yes, you can turn to the Bible and, and support all these things. Um, but, but to balance that, uh, hopefully this is a good transition point. Um, you know, yes, predominantly the, the scriptures are, do portray God as male, but there are plenty of scriptures that also emphasize the feminine attributes of God, right? <laughs> but it's true. It's true. Yes. You're absolutely spot on. Yeah. So do we want to reference some of those? Yeah. Well, the first, I mean, obviously we talked about it in the last episode, but yeah, the, the first one that comes to mind is right there in Genesis one, when the image and likeness of God is not just male, um, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, right off the bat, like, like I, like I mentioned and Amanda mentioned that, and I think Joy did too. Yep. Um, the image of God 
is male and female. I mean, if we want to, if we want to be binary, you know, so, but there's, there's this beautiful image. Um, if you go to the new Testament where Jesus in, uh, in Matthew 23, he makes an analogy that he's, he's, uh, he's a mother hen gathering her chicks. Um, yeah, it's also in Luke 13 as well. Yeah, sure. Sure. And so it's like, well, sure. We can be patriarchal. Like you said, we can justify just about anything in the Bible. Um, well, there's other, there's a couple of things too, like a, just real quick, if we just run down the bullet list and then we can move on to what that means. But um, there's also Old Testament verses in the Hebrew scriptures that speak of God as giving birth to Israel. And it uses metaphors. It says God is nursing them like a mother and he cares for them like a mother cares for her children. Um, even the New Testament scriptures often speak of us being born of God and children of God who are nurtured on milk uh, as newborn babes in Christ. And again, that that creates mentally images of okay how are we being nurtured on milk as newborn babes who are we suckling right uh it's god it's uh, and even jesus here's here's a crazy i never thought of this until someone brought this to my attention but in john chapter 7 verse 37 uh, when jesus stands up at the last day of the feast and he says to everybody everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink like it creates a mental picture okay i'm going to walk over to jesus mm-hmm. and i'm going to start drinking from what like in that culture, you drank from the breast of a mother, right? That's that's how you would drink, and so again, that that, that even in that sense is a reference to uh, sort of a female image. So there are plenty there. Again, if you want to acknowledge them, and if you will, some people don't want to acknowledge them. Um, but again, it's just reinforcing the idea that um, in the scriptures, as you were saying, Matt, you know, God is represented in the image of men and in women. It's both. Yes, there's a, you know, if you're going to make a tally, the male side is winning. <laughs> there are more references to the male side, but both are there. And both, it, it's still true that God isn't gender, uh, like you said, Jamal, God is not gender less. He's gender full. He's both. Both and yet neither one, you know, right? He's reflected. And more, and, and more than. And more than, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. And I, this is a question I have. Um, it's a question I'm, I'm fascinated with because uh, I don't know, do you ever, do you guys ever, and again, there's no right or wrong answer to this, but like just curious as to how, um, when you, when you pray, you know, do you ever, do you ever just say mother or do you ever say, because, you know, we, we're, we typically have been taught to pray heavenly father, you know, you pray heavenly father, father, thank you, father, whatever. But do you ever just say mother or, um, and just in reference to God, to the divine as mother or she, like, do you ever use, when you're talking about God in a personal way, because I think God can be, I mean, I, I understand God as a force. I understand God as energy. I, I understand God as consciousness, but I also understand God as person as well. I don't mm-hmm. think those are, you know, uh, exclusive, mutually exclusive. Um, so when I, when I think of God, uh, the divine as person, um, you know, I think the personal pronouns come into play. He, she, do you ever use that? Do you ever say she, in thinking, is that like something, or is it is it more difficult still to use those personal pronouns or to think of God in terms of mother, she kind of thing? I say I say El Shaddai every time, so I'm I'm <laughs> I'm praying to the many-breasted one. <laughs> many-breasted one, yes, that is what that means, which is crazy. You know what? I think that's a great question, Jamal. Um, I'm going to be really honest. I don't use that pronoun. I've not I've not in my personal you know, prayer time or just talking time when I'm talking to God, I've not said she or mother, but I wish that I did. And I actually, honestly, the more I'm thinking in this direction, I, I wonder 
why don't I? And maybe I should, because I, because I, because I, I, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm really fixated at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm, I like the idea of God as my Abba, as my father, as my daddy, uh, as a loving father is a really powerful image for me. And I, and I love that. And so maybe what I need to do then is not abandon that, but shift to the, also the idea that God is also uh, a mother and, and start thinking that way. But, but I haven't yet. I, no, that, I, oh, go, go for it, Jamal. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna, I was gonna say that uh, there's a, uh, we like movies, uh, Terrence Malick, uh, one of my favorite film directors. Oh yes. Well, you know, yes. something I really caught on in his films, you know, specifically, I think it was the new world about the Pocahontas story and like the, what he like depicts the thoughts of the characters and like, like, so if they're praying, if the characters are praying, I believe, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I believe Terrence Malick, uh, claims to be a Christian and somebody who, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's, he, but, but I, what I love about what he does is that he gets into the thoughts of the characters and then you hear how they're referencing the divine. And I, I really believe it's in the new world, the, the Pocahontas story. Like she just, you know, comes from a native, native American background, but, uh, but again, for whatever reason, like she refers in this film, um, she, she, she calls out mother, you know, she's mm. referencing the divine as mother and mm. very in feminine terms. And I just thought, wow, like, yeah, if we, if, if that was our concept, you know, like if that, yeah. if that was very natural to us, like maybe that just like Abba, you know, cause you know, if, what is a baby's first word you usually is mama mm -hmm. or dada, you know, kind of a thing, but they like to, to kind of think of the divine in those very childlike terms that include include the genderful idea that, you know, mama is just as much valid as dada, you know, it's just something yeah. I've been thinking and dwelling on and something's brought me a lot of personal comfort in my own relationship, you know? Um, yeah. Jamal, going to your question about prayer. Um, honestly, I think I've deconstructed prayer, prayer to such a, to such a place where I, I don't really do much of the talking. I, hmm. I, I, I kind of just sit and try to listen and I don't, I don't even know what that means. Just try to be still and to like empty my, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably more Buddhist than anything. I don't know, but I just try to be still and let thoughts come and pass and not, not label them, mm -hmm. not, not say whether they're good or bad, just to let them be as they are. And then try to reflect on maybe what, what came, because I think that's, there's so much chatter going on in my head. If if I'm talking too much, I'm really, really not going to actually listen or hear the voice of God, whether it would be fatherly or motherly. Um, but more to the point of your question, Jamal, not not so much in prayer, but in writing. I've tried to make a conscious effort to refer to God as she more than I do he. But I but if I'm not conscious about it, I definitely slip back into the yeah. um calling God he generally I try to just use the word God um mm. or God's self not himself mm -hmm. um but it actually brings us to this quote by Desmond Tutu um I don't know who threw it up there on our notes but I'll just read it uh it's quote I refer to God as he in this book and the book is God has a dream but this language is offensive to many, including me, because it implies that God is more of a he than a she, and this is clearly not the case. Fortunately, in our Bantu languages in South Africa, we do not have gendered pronouns, and so we do not face this problem. To avoid cumbersome usage in English, I have chosen to follow convention here, but I apologize to the reader for this grammatical necessity, but spiritual inaccuracy. And I, I love that last sentence. It's yes. like we, we use it for grammatical necessity, 
because that's just our culture and time and our place, but it is spiritually inaccurate. So recognizing that dichotomy there is just just beautiful, I think. I love this mm-hmm. quote. It is really hard. I think I made this comment the other day um, on, on, on uh, the Facebook group, the Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. Um, <clears throat> we were talking about this whole thing about genders and stuff like that. And, and I said, you know, I'm being honest. It's really hard. I think I default to him when I'm talking about God. You know, it's just my default. If I'm writing something about God, I'm writing something about, um, I just say him or he, and it is a default. And I realize it's, it's really, really hard to, to communicate things. I think for me, it is, I'm just saying for me, it's really hard to communicate, uh, things about God without using male or female pronouns at all. Like to use none at all. I'm not saying use he or she. I just mean to say, let's just remove all gender from the conversation. Now talk about God without referring to either gender. And like, you're, that's a good, uh, you have a good solution there, I think, Matt, the whole to say God self, or just to say God instead of he. Um, but yeah, you have to be really conscious about it, though, because yeah. I mean, goodness, I'm, I'm 35. And I've so that's a lot of years, probably 32 of them, at least, mm-hmm. or maybe 30 of them, just not even thinking about it. So you've got this huge sample size of, of this, like non-conscious subconscious phenomenon going on. And then you try to be conscious about it makes it super, super difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that when Moses, you know, the story in Genesis where Moses is asking God, what God's name is that God responds with a very, in a very non-personal way in some ways by saying, like, I like to use the word isness. It's not a correct word. I know. (laughs) It's like like, like the verb, the verb to be, you know, it's, I am, but it's like, essence isness being it's like that's who god is and it's a very to state of it's like you know the essence of god is like everything that is you know it's just yeah just yeah i i i mean i read a lot of david bentley hart i don't claim to understand all of it but that i he makes a great point that in his book the experience of god you know, you see these atheistic and theistic debates on YouTube or what have you. They're never talking about God. Um, I mean, they're talking about maybe a demiurge or a deity or something. But I mean, we're rarely talking about God as like the grounding of being or um, consciousness or bliss, as, as David Bentley Hart tries to articulate, I mean, does articulate, tries to make the point that that's what we're talking about, God. So this I mean, like Keith, you pointed out at the very start of this podcast, it's silly we're having this discussion. It's so silly. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, And you know, I I like what you're saying, though, about like, if we really wanted to talk about God and his true nature and his true character and this I am, this bliss, right, this consciousness, this, um, I I agree. I think that is probably a much better conversation for us to start having and and to be thinking, just to, to be our default way of thinking about God. But my immediate thought is, well, so why don't Christians do that? I would say because it sounds too Eastern. It sounds too New Agey. So we can't talk about God as a force or as the universe or as the creative whatever or the bliss or whatever, because that just seems too kind of foofy and uh, nonspecific. And you know what I mean? And now I think it's, I think it's accurate. I think it's probably better if we did that. Right. But I understand why we don't, because I think there's a fear of, again, this heresy, we're going to cross over into some kind of error. So we don't want to do that. Yeah. And I th- I also think that it's a, it's a challenge for people to think of God in using the term to be, or I am, because it, I, I kind of think it like 
it blurs the lines between God and us in some ways, because I am as I, I mean, we can all use these declarative statements, you know, Um, I, you know, even Descartes, you know, I think therefore I am, but the idea is that we, we, we are like as people, we are, we exist. Um, there is a sense of, and this maybe brings up the conversation of what does it mean to be made in the image of God? You know, um, God is essence, being, isness, however you want to put it. But, but that, those are all things that are true of us as people as well. Yeah. So that's that's a question like, okay, so what does it mean when it says that we're made in the image and likeness of God? And, you know, Jesus, and this is really something that I have dwelled on a lot, you know, with Jesus who, you know, I, I, I grew up in the, well, I didn't say grow up, but when I became a, a quote unquote evangelical Christian in my early adult years, and then like, you know, going to Bible college and eventually becoming a pastor, like I would look at these statements that Jesus made in the gospels that were clearly like, well, that's because he's speaking from his divinity. So when Jesus says, Mm. before Abraham was born, I am, and he uses this statement of being, I am always look at Well, that's Jesus. And he can say that because he's the second person of the Trinity. He's, but you know, then we would go over to Philippians and um, you know, when Paul talks about uh, Jesus saying, Hey, you know what? He like, this is not the way he operated. He actually took on upon himself the, you know, there's this emptying in that sense of just, not needing to, he didn't didn't think of him equality with God as something that he needed to strive for or grasp. Why not? Because humans in their original state are like God in the image and likeness of God. So he's you know took on the the the, the image or the form of a servant, the lowest of all humans, and in that he can say, "I am." Before Abraham was born, I am. So there's a real problem with just seeing Jesus in these declarative you know, statements about his divinity as being because he's different than us. Maybe it's because he actually is like us um, in that way. And that we all actually can have that understanding of that. We are like God. We are made in the image of God um, precisely because um, this is true of us. This, this, we possess consciousness and being in the same way that God does. Yeah. You know what? I think that's an interesting, I think that's such an interesting thought, Jamal. Um, and I love that whole passage in Philippians too. And, and there's so much meaning and profound, uh, you know, stuff being communicated there in that passage. What I love about it is, uh, what it reminds me of, in, I think it's in, in Acts, I can't remember what chapter, but there's, there's a passage in Acts where Herod uh, is, I think he's wearing his armor and he's all, you know, the sun is shining on him and he's kind of glowing and the people, he's in a public place. I forgot where he, anyway, so the, the details are he's out in front of people at some gathering and he's all shiny in his, in his, you know, robes and his armor. And the people say, look at Herod, he's like a God. And, uh, and then it says, because Herod did not, um, didn't, didn't deny that. Uh, he kind of accepted that. Yes, I'm like a God that he was eaten by worms and died. And so my, my point is, is that I think from a very human standpoint, again, we often think of being like God as being great and powerful and being a warrior. And that in that way, like if I'm going to be God-like, it's to be that kind of a being. Mm. And yet Jesus flips that totally around. Mm. And then it's like, no, to be like God is to be humble, to be a servant to empty yourself, to be nothing, mm. to love others. Like that's really what God is like. To be God-like then is not to be someone exalted, sitting on a throne, glowing and shining in armor and with so much power and authority and armies at his command and all that stuff. It's like, no, to be like God is to be 
humble and loving and a servant. And I don't know that I just, I love that image and that picture because I, I think it helps, it should help us then to understand when we are like that is when we're most like God. Right. And that that's a, a um, piggybacking on that, the, the beautiful picture painted in Isaiah, uh, the end of Isaiah 52, and then into 53, the suffering servant poem. It's like, that is to do the will of God. Like it's, it flips mm-hmm. this whole thing. That's the type of character that is going to shut the mouths of nations. And, and yes. for, for the Messiah to be the suffering servant, it's like, whoa, that's a huge role reversal where, you know, power is completely subverted. You know, it's like yep. things are ruled from below. It's a theology from below, a theology of the cross, as, as Luther would call it. It's not the, um, what is it, the, um, the theology of glory. God, we, all, we always talk about, like, like you said, God is in these grandiose terms, omni-everything. Mm-hmm. Well, some of those things might or might not be true, but where our theology starts is from below, from the foot of the cross, looking up at the one whom yeah. we pierced. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or in the manger, or, you know, uh, here, here's God and he's a helpless little baby, right. you know, pooping and peeing and <laughs> spitting up. <laughs> Right. Oh, what the right. heck? You know. You know, and like, like, let's get uh, thinking about the the topic. Okay, does God have a does God have a penis? Or you know, obviously, if, you know, we're asking that because we're I think males. We said but, no. I think we've concluded he does not have right. any. Or, or like, you know, if females. You know, they they would ask you. You know, like if you're if you're if you're a female and you say, does God have you know uh, a vagina? So like the answer is like no. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's 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 getting back to this. Like, but why do we ask that question? Or why is it that we may assume that. And I, this is what's fascinating to me, thinking about the image of God. Like if you look into a mirror, you know, and you think about imaging or mirroring, I love the concept of mirroring an image. But if you look into a mirror and let's say you never saw a mirror before, you had no idea that mirrors existed and you were like, <clears throat> lived your whole life. And then someone says, okay, I got a surprise for you. And, you know, obviously we've never looked at ourselves. We've never been able to get outside of ourselves to look back at ourselves. So we have no idea of this concept of mirroring. And someone says, I got a surprise for you. Close your eyes. And they put a mirror in front of you and they say, now open your eyes and look. And if you were to look into that mirror, you would see another person looking back at you. And it would be like, oh, that's amazing. Who's this person? And then when you move, they move. And it's just like, it appears through the illusion of mirroring, it appears that the person looking back you back at you in the mirror is outside of you, is external. And it, that's what it looks like. But I'm convinced that part of and this is just kind of my understanding of we're made in the image and likeness of God is part of this like, okay, we're in this three dimensional realm or like we have this where it, it looks like there's separation. It looks like there's, you know, there, there's but ultimately it's all an illusion. Like it, it's the image is not coming from the external place. The image is actually when you look in a mirror, you're looking at what's coming from within. That's being projected out here, so you you can look at it and have a relationship with it, and kind of like understand. Like I only know I've never actually seen myself fully. Um, I've only seen my mirror image, and so it's it's just an interesting concept to think like, well, what does God look like? Well, we've seen the image of God, so we can we can get a sense of what it's not quite full in the sense like yeah, it's still like kind of dim and low, but we've seen the image of God. That image of God. Um, is humanity. It's what, because all people were made in the image of God. So God literally is being 
mirrored back to us, but it's coming from within. It's not actually an external thing. So it, it's just a fascinating concept to think of like, yeah, God is not out there. So if you really want to know what God looks like, you have to look at people. I, I think Jesus literally manifested, demonstrated like he, you know, he is the, uh, the image and likeness of God. And then when we understand Christ is the expressed image of God, but by Christ, I think we're speaking of even just more than Jesus. We're speaking of, you know, we're speaking of, I would say, all people that are made in the image and likeness of God, which would be. Yeah. Well, that's how Jesus can say, whatever you've done for the least of the, you've done it unto me, because every human being, as you said, Jamal is made in the image of God. And therefore every human being Christian or otherwise reflects Mm -hmm. the glory of God and the, the image of God, male or female. uh, Yeah. All that beautiful. So beautiful. And I think though, unfortunately we're running out of a little bit of time here, but this, this, this whole conversation is leading, I think into our next podcast, which is, and it's something actually you said, Jamal, I think on the previous podcast about how the way we see ourselves, um, the way we see God uh, impacts the way we see ourselves and vice versa. So in other words, if I, how can I, um, how can I love you, Jamal, if I think that God looks at all people as wretches and he's disappointed in us and um, he's, he's, you know, high above us, sort of condemning us. If I see myself that way, if I think of myself as someone yeah. who God is disgusted mm-hmm. at and can't really love completely, well, then I, then I can't really see as you as someone who's worthy of love. And so, yeah, I think our next episode, we wanted to talk about this kind of, uh, come around this whole conversation about, you know, are we, uh, do we, do we have a Christianity where we're all worms and we're all wretches and God is disgusted at us or does God see us in a different way? And then if, if he does, then how should that impact everything else? Right. Yeah. Fil- right? Filthy rags, I think is my favorite description. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And did original sin, the idea of original sin, did that really, did that fundamentally change our, 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 our inherent, um, nature as being the image right. of yeah. God. Yeah. You know, that's a question. Can't wait to tackle it. Look forward to it. It's going to be a beautiful thing. But this was a good episode. I was, I, man, there was some good stuff here. I really think we got some good stuff uh, down. And thank you guys. It was okay. Yeah. And there's a hotline. There's a hotline no. too. So <laughs> unless you're going to correct me on my backslash forward slash shit, then don't bother that's- calling. <laughs> Hey, you know what? Yeah. No, none of our listeners. No, I mean, you guys just let me hang out there to dry. <laughs> how, how long can he do it? How long can he keep going? <laughs>